Welcome to The Third Web. I'm your host, Arthur Falls. This is the first time I think I've recorded anything for this podcast in, geez, what might be two or even three years? I don't know, it's crazy. But with me today is Benny Isambird from Concordia. Thanks for joining me, Benny. Thanks for having me, Arthur. Very, very happy to be here. I didn't have a place to put our interview without booting up this old property that I had. And the reason I wanted to talk is Concordium has this really great community feel about it. It's a layer one blockchain platform focused on the Rust community where it's had really, really great penetration. It's compliant by design. And in order to achieve this, it has a whole identity verification system. It's interesting. Can you give us your own overview of Concordium and how you came to be involved with it? Yes, of course. So I'm going to tell you a story, Arthur, if you don't mind, because it's always, you know, beginning by a story, everything that we do in life in general. But a little bit more than two years ago, when I was uh, heading the marketing for Beam Privacy, a cryptocurrency launched on Mimble Wimble, I got a phone call from somebody that was involved with Concordium. And I've been told that Torben Pedersen was about to lead the tech team. And just to manage expectation, Torben Pedersen is the father of the Pedersen commitment. So when I heard that this giant, or if you want, this rock star for every single, I would say, cypherpunk on this earth was about to do something in the blockchain world, I've left everything. I took my stuff and I engaged myself with Concordium. That's how I got, you know, to know this incredible project. After scratching a little bit, you know, a below the layers of the marketing, you know, stuff, I've discovered something very original and very new in the blockchain world. It was the first time I think that a project like that was assuming its real identity. You know, we are living in a world where most of the people are not standing for what they feel or for what they think or what they really believe. And at Concordium, I've discovered some people that were a little bit older than the usual, you know, age in the crypto world. And I've done a couple of things, you know, more than, you know, just developing a smart contract in Solidity. They were doing a lot of other things in the fintech world for the last 30 years. And their solution, together with the design brought by Torben Pedersen, which was, you know, about to create a bridge or harmony bridge, if you want to, between the legacy world and the new world was very appealing. And that's why, and that's how I've ended up, you know, leading the marketing at Concordium, which I'm doing for the last two years. So how do you determine that someone actually is the owner of a particular Concordium address? That's a very good question. I mean, we tend to be confused between the whole KYC process and the concept of identification. And I think that in order to answer your question, Arthur, I will begin by defining the limits of our little game, if you want to. We don't KYC at Concordium anybody. We are a public, permissionless blockchain that does put the privacy of its users at the top of its priority. And I know that it seems or it sounds a little bit, you know, weird to say that we are providing, you know, compliance by design or we are providing an identity layer while we are stating and proving by deploying our tech that we are, you know, privacy centric. So the first thing I would like to say is that we don't KYC people at Concordium. Concordium has, at the core level of its protocol, an identification layer that is enabling users to identify themselves using an identity provider of their choice to create an identity object that is protected by zero-knowledge proof 
and to deploy it wherever they want to deploy once it's going to be the time. On Concordium side, what we see is whether a user is, I would say, kosher, meaning he is approved to be using our chain or not. We don't see anything related to his or her identity data or attributes. We just get a message from our zero-knowledge-proof machine, whether it's green or red. And that's it. We don't know who transacts on the chain. But at one point, if you don't play by the rules or you are using or misusing the system, we have a built a design that is enabling anonymity revokers to jump in and to revoke anonymity of a specific transaction or a specific, I would say, account. But just upon a court appeal or court order coming from a democratic state. We are not involved in this process. We just are giving to the authorities and to the users the right tools to protect their privacy or to revoke the anonymity. So long story short, we don't KYC people. We just enable them to be compliant when they are using our system and to be as protected as possible and to be accountable for what they do if they misuse the system. Let's look specifically at how the identity verification works and then how essentially the revocation of anonymity for a specific transaction works. So for the identity part, I would say, of the system, there are several identity providers that are already plugged in our system. And you can choose by just downloading one of our reference wallets, one of them to identify yourself. By dim, this means, it means that you are going, you know, to organize yourself from a pure identity point of view in front of them. You are going to upload with them your documentation. And the only thing that the Concordium blockchain will see, it's, you know, a kind of signal or ping that will say that Archer is able, you know, to begin to use our system. In general, it takes a little bit less than 10 seconds to be identified and to begin to transact. On the other side of the map, we have the whole anonymity revocation stuff meaning that some keys are kept in an encrypted way by some anonymity evokers. Most of the time we speak about law firms in several countries that can at any point upon, you know, court order, they can revoke, you know, the anonymity of a transaction and to find who is the owner of this transaction. We don't see this. We don't participate in this. We just give again the tools to those anonymity evokers to revoke an anonymity if this is needed. Let's just go over this one more time. So how do the anonymity revokers become activated and how do they have the tools to, like, who are these individuals? So they have the tool to decrypt, I would say, transactions and to find some attributes related to the identity or to the KYT, if you want to know your transaction stuff. So they are able to connect between a wallet and a transaction. And to find, obviously, who is the owner of this wallet, because this wallet was identified in order to play the game. How do you become an anonymity revoker? You must pass several, I would say, you know, steps in front of the Concordium Foundation. It means that not everybody can be that. And you have, obviously, to be a legal entity in the country that you are, you know, activating there. You will be trained by Concordium. You will get the keys only to see, to view who is the owner at one point and to specific transactions. It means that we have a decentralized network that will, I would say, you know, take the burden in a decentralized way of all those transactions. So it means that, for example, our first anonymity revoker that is sitting in Switzerland might not be the one that will be able, you know, to revoke your anonymity if you are sitting, for example, a, I don't know, in South Korea. I see what you're saying. Okay. But so this is one of these things where 
you know, if we look at the qualities of Concordium, effectively it's censorship resistant, right? I'm presuming that it's a censorship resistant decentralized blockchain. And being decentralized, we get censorship resistance and presumably robustness, right? You know, when I think of decentralization, I think it's become culturally this end in and of itself. And people have forgot that decentralization is just a strategy to achieve certain qualities. Typically, those are robustness, representativeness, and censorship resistance. And we could break those things down specifically. Now, representativeness is not relevant to this particular case because we're just talking about the neutral network itself. But we get robustness, we get censorship resistance, presumably, but the adjunct quality that we associate with blockchains that doesn't come from decentralization, but comes from cryptography, which is the tool we use to build these decentralized systems, that being anonymity, that is something that is contingent in the case of Concordium. I agree. I mean, you are definitely right. I would add maybe one point, I mean, to this whole concept of decentralization, which resonates very well with me, what you are just saying. We don't use a Concordium technology because we like a specific technology. We use technology to reach, you know, a specific goal. So today it's, you know, we use a lot of encryption because this is our core DNA. Most of our developers are cryptographers, professional cryptographers led by, like I said, Tobin Pedersen. But what we can bring to the table also, it's the trust or the proof of trust made in a kind of, if you allow me, a social contract, a new social contract between, you know, people that are transacting and between, you know, the regulator of this world and also between, you know, the viewers of this world. And using encryption to protect users' privacy, but also to turn them into accountable when it comes, you know, to misuse of a system. I think it's something that is very innovative in this world, and that was not tackled by anybody until now. Yeah. Increasingly, I'm looking at the way that blockchain platforms have evolved over the years, and you see these different ramifications, these different qualities that are considered to be most important, right? On the one hand, you know, you've got, let's call them the decentralization maximalists, I'd associate with Ethereum. and then. You have these kind of more special purpose, I guess, maybe application optimized blockchains, Concordium being a classic example of one. It's cool to see that you've chosen to do some, some things that the diehards in the Ethereum land probably wouldn't appreciate. But at the same time, you've come up with a platform that is actually much more compatible with the way most people live and want to live their lives. Precisely. I think that you have touched a very important point here. I mean, I'm in a business for the last 25 years and in the high-tech business for those last years. Innovation means for a lot of people, it means in general disruption and revolution and killing what was done until now and trying to reinvent the wheel. But I'm a good Bible reader, I would say, and there is nothing new. And I don't believe you know, that you can really invent something that was not already thought or designed by anybody else. And what we try to do here is not, you know, to come with something that is completely new that will blow the central banks, systems and the states as a concept or whatsoever. I mean, we are far from this, I would say, dialogue and this wishful thinking, if you ask me. What we have tried to do here is to be integrated within the current fintech world and to bring, you know, some elements from the other side of the map, 
like decentralization, like encryption, like zero knowledge proof, like obviously cryptocurrencies to the legacy world and to bring this legacy world to be aligned with what is done in terms of innovation on the other side. And we have chosen to tackle the whole identity, I would say, tech approach because we fell at the time when we have created, you know, Concordium, it was about three or four years ago in the University of Aarhus and in ETH Zurich in Switzerland. We were really, you know, sure of ourselves when it comes to the identity tech that it will be a major piece of the Web 3.0, you know, challenges, how you manage your identity or digital self, how you keep control on it, and how the identity tech is the key for adoption. Because today, I don't have to tell you out here, but it's, I would say, a global rape, what is going on today with our data and our digital selves. So it was also, from our side, a way to say that we want, as grown-ups or mature people, to take care of something that is very capital and very crucial for the world industry to be taken care of by the right people. And we thought at this time that we were the right people to take care of the world concept of identity in the blockchain world. I want to move on and talk a little bit about performance. And earlier you mentioned that it took 10 minutes to get one of these verifications. Seconds, seconds, <laughs> not minutes. 10 seconds. So how do you achieve such rapid finality? This is about, you know, the identity object that you can get into 10 seconds. Now, when it comes to the finality, we have chosen, you know, a very, I would say, ambitious path is that we believe that blockchain means that what you do is not, you know, reversible. It means that when you put something in a block, you shall not touch it again. You shall not print more money if you want to, if you want a little bit of flavor of the times that we are living in today. You cannot change what was done in order, you know, to manipulate something. So we have put a very big focus on our concept of finality, and we have chosen, I would say, a mixed model or an hybrid model between probabilistic finality and between deterministic finality. I don't know if we all are aware about that, but there is very low level of finality in the blockchain today. So there are some transactions on Ethereum and Bitcoin that you can you know, definitely reverse. A couple of days ago, I was sending you know, some transaction on the Bitcoin network, and some of those transactions were not on hold and they were not respected, so they were rolled back. This is not going to happen with Concordium because we have chosen you know, this model. And this model actually is a kind of mix between you know, an NST, I mean, a Nakamoto-style you know, consensus approach and also a BFT-style you know, approach that will enable us at the time to, I would say, if you allow me to use this metaphor, to drive a Formula 1 when it is possible and to slow down the finality when it's not possible and when the network is very busy. But all blocks will be finalized at time. And that's why also we have limited the number of finalizers in our network to 1,000 to be able to control the finality as much as possible. And just to make sure that you understand from where we were coming, I mean, since we are a little bit older than the others, we have seen a couple of things, you know, in this world that where we speak about that completely incredible at this time. When you send, you know, some wire transfer using your bank, to buy something and in the end of the road, there is a rollback and you never see the money back. This is what we wanted to avoid by using this, you know, mixed approach between probabilistic and deterministic, you know, finality. How does the deterministic side of it work? And then let's discuss the probabilistic side, the optimistic side. So the probabilistic finality, if you want to, it's a kind of, you know, way to say that you can revert, you know, some transactions. This type of finality is used in every single, I would say, you know, Nakamoto style blockchain, like, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, 
and even Cardano that has a, a very interesting, you know, by the way, a finality scheme by the means of Robros. And the idea is that, you know, the parties are trying to stand the longest chain of blocks. That's the idea. And the probability for a block not to be reverted increases in a very exponential way with the number of blocks that are built on top of it. It means that the more blocks you have on the chain, the less chance you could see, you know, finality. That's how probabilistic, you know, finality is working. And if you ask me, that's why it's a little bit passé when it comes to the mass, I would say, adoption use of a blockchain. You need to be able to finalize all your transactions, no matter what. And that's why, you know, some other chains were using the deterministic, you know, finality approach, which means in another kind of world that a transaction cannot be reverted once it has been marked as final. Most of the BFTs, I mean, the Byzantine, you know, finality styles, blockchain are using this deterministic, you know, finality. Algorand is one of them. And you can definitely also add, I would say, you know, some finality to a Nakamoto style blockchain if you use a kind of gadget, what we call a finality gadget. It means that you add on top of your Nakamoto style, you know, a consensus, you add something, a little piece of code that will play the role to finalize, you know, as soon as possible, every kind of transactions. At Concordium, we have chosen, you know, to use a AvBiot, which is a finality gadget that we have also, you know, contributed to develop. And we want to use it on top of a BKA consensus, meaning a, about the Nakamoto-style consensus that we have built. So again, it is for us, you know, a very hybrid mode when we want to take the safe side of the map, but we need also to understand the, the user's needs or the user benefits when it comes to finalizing transactions. How on earth, as you, a business or a human being, a user, would you like to use a blockchain that is not guaranteeing you that everything will be final there? It's not possible to work this way. So we have built, you know, this mixed approach and by the means of this little gadget that we have put on top of our Nakamoto style consensus. Okay, interesting. And so looking at the Nakamoto style consensus, so you're using proof of work. Is this like SHA-256 or something like that? Oh, we don't use proof of work. We have a proof of stake. Okay. And a state-of-the-art proof of stake for, I would say, sustainability you know, reasons. We don't want you know, to contribute too much to the global warming. And also because we wanted you know, to be as scalable as possible. And I think that you know, the proof of stake was better for us. Okay, I just associate like Nakamoto consensus with proof of work. And actually, I'm going to make another little two-part question here. So when I think of proof of stake, the word that I use in my head is bonded validator, right? You've got (laughs) validators that have paid a bond that they lose if they misbehave. And the reason I use that is proof of stake to me, it doesn't mean a whole lot semantically, right? It's a strange term that I feel harkens back to proof of work without really being representative of what's going on. So each of your validators, each of your finality creators, they have a bond or some Concordium tokens at stake. How does this Nakamoto-style consensus work in that context? So the Nakamoto-style consensus creates the blocks, if you want to. The gadget on top of our you know, Byzantine you know, approach is doing the finality. What we have done at Concordium, we have split it between two parts of the map. We have the validators that are creating, you know, blocks. And we have another category, another community of validators that are also finalizing, you know, those blocks. 
so to speak, it's not necessarily you as a validator that is going to finalize your own you know, transactions. We have you know, built our model based on the two-thirds of honesty approach. So it means that in order you know, to make sure that we are meeting our mission and we are fulfilling our mission, we need at least you know, two-thirds of honesty of honest parties. And that's why we are also running you know, some nodes from a pure you know, foundation point of view. But the idea for us it was really you know, to have you know, those two streams, if you want, to completely separate it. You have, I would say, you know, this bunch of people that are creating blocks as soon as possible, as much as possible. When you have, you know, these other kind of, you know, of people trying to do, you know, the finalizations as soon as possible, based obviously on a specific honesty. Now, I agree with you that there are some limits to the model of proof of stake because it's quite new compared to the proof of work and just to manage expectations here. I'm coming from the proof of work, you know, world. I'm a Bitcoin Maxi for years. I've dealt with BIM, which is a proof of work, and Concordium is my first proof of stake. So I know a little bit, you know, about what you are talking about, about the Nakamoto style and the, the really, I would say, the semantic concept of proof of work, that you can prove that you have done something. But we have built, I think, a model on the side of Concordium that is based on meritocracy. It means that we are not here, you know, to judge. We are not here to put you in jail or to slash your stakes. We believe that by putting a very high level of standards, we are going to attract quite a lot of good nodes runners. And because also we have, you know, this identity layer that forces you to be identified if you want to run a node or to validate blocks or to finalize the transactions. So it means by definition, you are going, you know, to push back all the bad actors that are trying to use proof of stake chains in order to manipulate some stuff. Let's not forget that this identity, I would say, shield is also, you know, against these kind of things. Speaking a bit about Concordium's role in the broader blockchain ecosystem, the way that I break up a application is essentially into the application hosting layer, the data storage layer, and then the transaction layer, or the registry and identity layer. All of those last three can be kind of controlled by a blockchain. And when we think about high-performance blockchains, we usually think about really fast transactions, et cetera, things happening on this transaction layer. Concordium has a very new, very different offering to other blockchains, right? I mean, everyone's got speed these days, but you actually offer, on the one hand, the ability to have regulatory compliance. On the other, the ability to have anonymity revoked. And for most people, Elective anonymity revocation is no big thing. It's only a big thing if you're, a, <laughs> if you're a criminal, right? Yeah. Or stealing funds. So how do you interact with other blockchains? And what type of application do you see being valuable or you know, being most appropriate for Concordium? That's a very valid question. Just allow me to comment on what you said about you know, anonymity and privacy. I mean, it's true what you said. I mean, when we think about, you know, anonymity and privacy, we think that if I have nothing to hide, why should, you know, I care, you know, for my privacy or my anonymity? If I'm not misleading or misusing the system, I don't need these kind of things. This is true and untrue also, because I dare you take your transactions to an accountant and to get them, you know, audited in a proper way if you cannot, you know, trace the origin of the funds. And we provide this kind of thing because our approach is not KYC-centric, but KYT-centric. So it means that every single transaction made on the Concordium you know, network 
will be auditable by design because we have, you know, this kind of system. So we have taken a lot from the banking system and implemented it into, you know, our blockchain. When it comes to our rollout, we are a permissionless, a layer one blockchain. It means that we enable others to build on top of us whatever they want to build that is, you know, respecting our, you know, mission and our values. It means that if you are trying to build a DEX, for example, that is no KYC centric and does not, you know, impose for users to be identified, then you will have, you know, some very hard time to build on top of us. But in general, what we are inviting people to do is to come A to us to check, you know, our developers' experience. But more than everything else, I think, and this is one of our missions, that we are very appealing for the Fortune 500, you know, companies that are sitting today on the fence of the crypto fence and are saying to themselves, well, mm, interesting, but not mature yet. Or, well, I cannot go to my uh, auditor and, you know, audit some transactions because it's not legal. Oh, some people are building today with Hyperledger or with Ethereum and do understand that there are a lot of limits to those, you know, I would say constructs. So we are a agnostic in this kind of things. We have a little idea of what can be built on top of Concordium. We have a first use case that was released last week. It's an NFT marketplace, maybe the first one that offers really a regulatory compliance landscape. And obviously, everything that is related to IGA, identity uh, governance administration, or to privacy tech enhancement, uh, will be, you know, very blessed. But, and this is something that maybe I need to challenge a lot of people with, I think that the, my best day at Concordium will be when I will see the first game built on top of Concordium. Then I will say that, you know, we have fulfilled our mission. So it means that our agnostic, I would say, approach by the means of this identity layer and more stuff that we are providing, like our sharding design that will come next year, are going, you know, to be, I would say, very appealing for a lot of people that are building, you know, on top of blockchain today. My next question, you've prefigured, in fact, what is next for Concordium? We've got sharding. Yeah. Sharding is coming. We really believe that the sharding design will be beneficial for Concordium because, again, we have built something that is permissionless and public. But what if tomorrow, let's say IKEA, because, you know, I don't know if you know, but our CEO is the chair of the IKEA board, but IKEA comes to Concordium saying, okay, it's nice what you are doing. We want to create a governance token for our clients. Nice. But we want a private and permission blockchain. We don't want you know, to work according to your rules. Then, in general, what you do is you are choosing you know, another kind of chain because you are very monolithically you know, targeted when you do something. The sharding mechanism will enable us you know, to host any kind you know, of project, whether it's public, whether it's private, whether you know, it's permission, whether it's permissionless. But more than everything else, it will not kill our scalability and our TPS because we are going to split the power of finality and to issue something that is a little bit new in the market, we are going to offer our finality as a service. So it means that very soon, and it's going to happen next year, you will be able to use our finality layer to finalize blocks on another chain. For example, if you are using Ethereum, the moment that they are going to move to a proof of stake, you know, mechanism, they will be able to plug in Concordium and to use our finality as a service in order to make sure that they are not hurting their TPS. So our whole concept is made of, I would say, splitting or turning each and single layer that you have on the Concordium, you know, core level into, you know, services that you can deploy everywhere else. 
Because what we do, it's not only for the Concordium ecosystem, it's for the world ecosystem. And we believe at Concordium that you need to have several blockchains, that you need to have you know, several layer one blockchains, and we need to work with them and to communicate because each one of them has a specific purpose. That sounds like just about as good a punctuation point to end this chapter. Where can people find out more about Concordium and how can developers get involved? So the best way to know about Concordium is to come to our website, concordium.com, to follow us on Twitter and to join our communities. If you are more a trader, then you need to join us on Telegram. If you are more developers where we have the most you know, of our community, you join us on Discord. And if you want you know, to jump into the swimming pool, I would say, we have also a, deployed a very single and unique initiative that we have called the DevX Initiative, which is an ad hoc platform for Rust developers. And if you are willing to learn a little bit more to code in Rust from a pure agnostic point of view, not related to Concordium, not related to the blockchain world, you are more than invited to join us on the DevX Initiative platform too. In general, we are very open you know, for any use case. Today, our next, I would say, milestone will be to go for a public listing. Our coin will be publicly traded in Q1 2022. But you can expect to see a lot of new use cases and hopefully some unicorns that are going you know, to be built on top of this unique blockchain that we have built for the last three years. Well, well, thank you very much for taking the time, Benny. This has been a real pleasure. It's great to jump back in the third web saddle. <laughs> it's been long enough. Well, I look forward to hearing how this unfolds. And let's keep talking because hopefully we'll be able to catch up in person once this COVID Omnicron thing deals with itself. I would love to. That's on the first position on my to-do list. So you can count on me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, cheers. Take it easy, mate. Thank you very much for everything I think. Thanks for listening to The Third Web. This feed has become a bit of a catch-all for the various pieces of content that I've been producing over the years. I'm going to continue populating it with just any piece of audio that I produce, but increasingly, I think I'm going to produce Third Web-specific episodes, just because sometimes there's something out there that doesn't fit into another category that I'd really like to cover. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the content that has been finding its way onto this feed, and there's going to be more in the future. So, something to look forward to there. I'm Arthur Falls. Keep listening.